Good evening. Good evening. You hear me? Uh, anchoring from my computer. Um, I was temporarily away from it uh, when you sent the first link. I was uh, stirring some hot cocoa, which I will enjoy as we have our discussion. Very nice. Very nice. It's the right way to do it. It's true. It's true. My parents gave me like a big bag of hot cocoa mix um, to take with me to Auburn when I came back here in January. So I've uh, been a big fan of it. It's a very good mix. Better hear it. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, I would say. Mm-hmm. Most part. Yeah. Yeah, I feel similarly. I think uh, it's now been a little over a month. Uh, almost, I guess. Well, yeah, a little over a month since the semester started. Um, I'm starting to feel that mid-semester fatigue. Um and so I'm trying my best to work my way through it, uh, through mid. Okay. <laughs> um, well, that's kind of where I'm at right now. It's been a busy semester. Um, I'm taking three classes this semester. I think I probably mentioned that before. Um, and so it, they're harder than I thought they would be. Uh, at least some of them are. And so uh, definitely been working a lot more this semester in terms of like class work in addition to research stuff. Right. Mm. In, in what way are they difficult? Are they difficult in just that they're time consuming or that they involve a lot more intensive thinking than, than you're used to? One of them is very time consuming just because there's a lot of homework. The other one is uh, just more conceptually difficult because it's like an advanced staff class. Um, math isn't like, I think out of all the math subjects, probably stats makes the most sense to me. Um, but it, it gets a little difficult um, when you get into more advanced stuff. Um, and at least this is the most advanced stats I've done, which is probably not all that advanced in the scheme of things. But um, so that's what I'm working on right now. It's mainly just the stats class. All right. Have you gone, do you get, have you learned how to use um, the statistical software are pretty well in that class or using a different software? So yeah, for this class, we're using a different software called M+. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but... Um, not, not particularly. It's, it's really designed for multi-level modeling, um, especially, um, which is the class I'm taking. So we're doing multi-level statistics. Um, so all of our assignments, we're doing them in M+. Um, you can do all the same models in R, um, but it's more complicated to do it in R because the M plus software is pretty much built for it. So the software is pretty easy friendly um, as far as like, you know, being able to write the code, so to speak. It's not even really code. It's just syntax. It's kind of like the syntax in SPSS. We've ever used that. Um, and uh, so it's user friendly program, which is nice. It's just uh, the stuff behind it. Just the modeling itself is a little difficult conceptually at times. Um, you know, I haven't had as much experience with R right. as I'd like to, but most of the stuff I've done with R has been on my own time, like like internet tutorials and, um, you know, learning specific things for like research projects and stuff like that. Most of my staff classes that I've taken have used like SPSS and M plus mainly. Um, 
we've done a little bit of R in a couple of my stats classes, but I kind of wish they'd all been taught in R because you can do everything that I've done in all of my stats classes in grad school in R. Um, I think it's better just to learn how to do it all in R personally, just because I think it's a more useful language. You can do a lot more with it and it's better like in terms of your skill set to have like fluency in it. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> but I also understand why they, you know, don't do it because not as many faculty have expertise in R because so many of the faculty in the department were trained on software like SBSS instead of R since R is newer and, uh, you know, especially in the psychological and social sciences, more people, I think, were used to using SPSS. Um, but that's quickly changing. I think more and more people are adopting R at least in the world of psychology research. Um, and, you know, I think at some point R will almost entirely replace SPSS, but I don't know, it's hard to say. I mean, the biggest advantage is that R is completely free and SPSS, your university has to pay an expensive license for. Um, you know, so, I mean, there's that, but you can also just do a lot more in R um, if you, you know, it's just a learning curve, I think, to like actually learn it. But if you start teaching like undergrads R, you know, and that becomes like standard part of the undergrad psych curriculum, you know, you'll have way more undergrads coming into grad school already knowing how to use R. So then there's less upfront training that grad programs have to do to teach people how to use R, um, you know, because the new students already know how to use it. Um, so I think eventually that's kind of the direction things will go there, which I'm kind of excited for. But here so in that kind of course have you developed like a study group with other grad students to help get a hold of them to help be able to manage the classwork yeah um I haven't, out? I haven't especially mainly just because uh it would probably have to take place over zoom and i find that people are really zoom fatigued as of late um so also, there's only six people in that stats class, so this is a small class, and it's it's an interesting class because it's a hybrid model. So half of the students are in person, and the other half are uh, on Zoom. And so he basically has our Zoom screen projected onto the uh, projector in the classroom, and has the classroom recorded um, and projected to the Zoom screen so that the people on Zoom can see and hear everything. And then the people in the class can see our faces on this like projector screen. Um, so I'm like one of the people that's on Zoom uh, of the three people. Um, and then the other three are in person. Um, I, I know most of the people in this class though um, already. So um, I guess that's kind of cool. But this week I'm doing like a group project thing um, with a couple people. Um, we're just uh, zooming to prepare for an article presentation that we have to do uh, next Tuesday for class. Um, so that should be fun. But that's probably the only real like cooperation and interaction I've had with students outside of class. Plus, our professor is very adamant that all the like individual assignments we do on our own. Um, and so, you know, uh, ordinarily I might reach out to people and be like, "Hey, what'd you get for number three? Um, but he seems very much like he doesn't want us to do that. So I'm, I'm fine to try and work on them myself. All right. So, and then the other thing I'm taking, one is Cognero, 
which is kind of time consuming because there's a lot of readings. Um, and you definitely have to do the readings because there's a lot of quizzes um, and you cannot do well in the quizzes if you have not done the readings. Um, and then the third class is an easy class, which is a, it's just a teaching and learning class. Um, I can't remember if I mentioned this last time we talked, but like I'm planning on getting a certificate, uh, a teaching learning certificate at Auburn. They offer it. It's basically just for teaching classes and it prepares you to teach more effectively. Uh, you know, it gives you at least a little bit of training in how to teach, um, which most professors don't have, um, you know, and it's something they emphasize a lot in the teaching certificate. Um, so, I mean, it's nice. It'll probably look a little good on the resume. And I think once I get my master's, I'll be able to teach my own class at Auburn. Um, most likely it'll just be intro to psychology. Um, and then, uh, you know, um, it'll be good to have had some preparation, I guess, um, prior to teaching my first class. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but I'm taking, yeah, the third of four classes, um, I'm taking the fourth one this summer semester um, for the certificate and then at least that part of the certificate will be done. Um, I might get another certificate in like stats because I'm doing extra stats classes already that like I'm not required to do but I just decided to take for my own interest um, and I might be able to take enough of them to get a like research methods in statistics certificate too. I just like found this out like maybe two or three days ago so I'm like oh there, there you go. I get two. <laughs> Uh, we'll see. Do you have much? Yeah. Um, did you did you have much experience with tutoring up to the um, point? Well, or te- where the idea where teaching where teaching would be more would would be yeah, more interesting? So, yeah. So it's interesting. I worked at the writing center my undergrad. Uh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No worries, no worries. Um, I guess the only thing I ever had before that was in high school, my senior year, I was like a tutor. So like, we had this like AVID program where like they would pair senior students with like freshmen and sophomores to like tutor them in subjects. Um, and so it was like a class period I would go to. It was like my second period in my senior year of high school. And I'd go in and like, we'd like meet in groups with like the freshmen and sophomores and like help tutor them with like their homework assignments and stuff like that. So like I had that and then the writing center and those are like, and then, well, and then beyond that, I've also just helped a bunch of people with their essays independently um, of the writing center, just friends and stuff who come to me because they're like, hey, I have this essay. Um, so I, I love that personally. Um, I, that was probably my, if I'm being totally honest, I think probably out of all the jobs I've had, that was by far my favorite was working at the writing center. Um, actually made me think about doing clinical psych because um what i loved so much about it was working one-on-one with people um individually like that was awesome and i think it was probably one of my favorite aspects of the job um so i don't know if that would be different for me like when i'm teaching for a whole class you know how the dynamics will change i've given a couple lectures um here and there like so maybe three or four like lectures for like classrooms um and i enjoyed those experiences somewhat, um, but it's not the same dynamic, uh, I don't think, I would guess, as it is to actually be like the instructor in teaching. So it'd be an interesting experience. Um, I guess what I'm really saying is I don't really know. I think I could be a good teacher and I think I might like it, but 
you know, until you do it, you really just don't know. So that's the plan. Is, uh, I should yeah. hopefully, yeah. if this, things go according to plan, schedule-wise, defend my master's in fall of this year. In which case, then in spring of 2022, I would be able to teach my first uh, class. All right. Um, when you were president of your forensics team, did you ever help kids out? tutor kids about their events yeah I, I did that a lot even before i was president um we also had a captain system where like uh each uh you know a specific varsity member for each event was like chosen to be the captain for that event and they would like tutor um underclassmen or just anyone really in the event um and so i was the oratory captain for a period of time like my junior and senior year and then for part of my senior year, I was also an extem captain. Um, no, not extem. I don't know why I'm thinking that. Um, public forum. I did that with John. Um, him and I were like public forum captains our senior year. So we taught like all the freshmen were doing BF, like how to do BF basically. Um, so um, yeah, a lot of like one-on-one -on -one type stuff in that situation. Um, and then like small group things and stuff. Mostly the small group stuff. Yeah, I enjoyed that a lot. Um, kind of makes me, you know, we've talked about this before, but you know, I, I think like you know, looking back, if I could like sort of redo my senior year, I probably wouldn't have ran for president, and I would have just put my energy into being captain of the events and just you know, just enjoying that aspect of it, just like the competition and the events rather than the leadership aspect, which I didn't end up liking very much, but. I still think it's a valuable experience, so yeah. I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't undo it because I feel like I learned a lot, even if I didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, well, maybe that's the sort of thing that helps make you a good, a good leader is that you're not power hungry, is that you see it, that you see it as a, as a calling, that you accept your Maybe. You know... I, I think, uh, you know, that that's, a, it's a, <laughs> how do I phrase this? Like my brain stopped working for a moment. It's one of those things where I think like, you often hear people say things like that, you know, where it's like, you know, that's how we know you would be a good leader. It's because you're not seeking after the power. Um, and I think that is true for a certain category of people. But I also think there's another category of people who don't seek after power who are all, who would also be bad leaders. <laughs> They yeah. don't want the power, not because they're not power hungry, because they know they would be bad at building it. <laughs> yeah. And I, I worry I fall into that category. <laughs> All right. You know, that reminds me, um, something that I want like, just kind of in like a casual kind of question I felt, yeah. I felt like asking the other day. Um, and the times when you were at Nationals, did you, when you were casually like making conversation with other people from like, with like competitors, I guess, from like other areas of the country, did, did you get the sense that a lot of them were the kind of people who come from like really like elite backgrounds, the kind of people who have like private coaches and, and it's just a ton of extra resources that just gave them an extra edge that, that would make it 
that just made it seem really unbalanced. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely I definitely got that impression from more from more than a few people that I saw and, and chatted with. Um there were other people who were a lot more down to earth. Um and you know, seemed much more like chill and didn't seem like they came from a particularly elite background per se. Um, But I felt like that wasn't the majority of people that I chatted with. You know, in retrospect, I kind of wish I had chatted with more people because I think in between rounds, I spent most of my time just talking to my teammates, which, you know, fair enough, they're my teammates, but I didn't get to know other people as well as I you know, might have liked to in retrospect. Um, but I definitely got that impression. Um, I remember one thing that cracked me up was there was definitely two groups of people there in terms of people who were like hyper serious versus people who were there uh, and were more relaxed. Um, and it was interesting seeing that dynamic. Um, I remember I went to one of my extemp rounds and when I got there, there was a little bit of a delay. So the speaker that was supposed to come after me or before me was still waiting outside. Like they hadn't gone in yet. So they were like two people behind. Um, and I looked at him and I smiled and waved. And he was like pacing back and forth, like reciting his speech, you know, practicing it in his head before going in. But, you know, I looked at him and I waved and I smiled. I think I said like, hey, or something like that, you know? And then he just gave me the dirtiest look (laughs) because I was interrupting him. And it was just like, man, if that look could kill, I was just like, oh, all right. (laughs) Yeah. It was pretty funny. (laughs) You know, like, okay, there we go. I see. He probably ran higher than I did in that round, though. (laughs) So fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah. Nationals was an interesting experience. Um, but yeah, it definitely seemed like there were people who like were like hyper vet, who were like super polished. And like some of the more elite people were polished in a way that felt very weird. Um, a little robotic. Almost yeah. Ro- robotic? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, almost not robotic because like, like it was almost like like a human who had been turned into a robot who's now pretending to be human again. <laughs> Does that make more sense? So right. you took someone who was a human, you transformed yeah. them into a robot, and then you said, okay, but now you have to pretend to be a human again. You know, because it was polished in a way that tried to seem likable and human. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can imagine what you mean. You know, I, I remember. Yeah, I, I remember, because like, I remember, like, as a senior or maybe even a junior, like, I would watch every now and then watch like videos of people performing in the finals rounds at nationals from like different years, and I, especially like extemp rounds. And I occasionally remember them occasionally trying to like throw in a joke or like a one-liner or whatever to try to make themselves seem more charismatic or whatever and I remember thinking to myself like how it seemed so like I could tell even then that it felt very phony but they said it with 
such, I guess, energy or whatever, or like the effort, as if they really wanted to have kind of that they really wanted to be seen as charismatic. That kind of maybe sort of come, came off that way, as if they're trying to portray. Not, not, not just being like articulate or or being reasonable in their actual speech content but actually kind of per, be I guess kind of play like a, a charismatic speaker yeah yeah that a lot in stem I remember one time this is, wasn't at nationals but it was at a out of state tournament somewhere in California and uh, I was in an oratory round and this girl came up to speak and within like the first 30 seconds you knew she was getting first you know because she was just a phenomenal speaker and it, her speech was really well written but she had this like uh, super like hyper uh, energy where like she was like over the top almost cartoonishly uh, exaggerative in her like mannerisms her way of speaking um and you could tell it was completely phony. And to me, it just totally undermined it. Um, maybe because it was original oratory, you know? Like, if it had been HI, then I would have been like, great, you know? But, like, because it was original oratory, it just felt so insincere in a way that was just, it ruined it for me. But you knew she was going to get first because, technically speaking, she, like, delivered much better than everyone else did, you know? Yeah. You have that reaction sometimes of people speaking in that kind of style, and you think that this kind of, this is the kind of person who intends to sometimes run for office one day. I wondered who just who, who just who just feeds on like public on like on like on like public applause or or public mm-hmm. approval or whatever, and who just really who are just very desperate yeah. to be seen as characters. yeah i mean and who knows you know maybe it's more cynical than that and it's really just like well i want to win this event how am i going to win this event you know that kind of thing um you know i don't know yeah. you know there's a lot of motivations at play uh you know always complicated of course. But, but yeah i definitely got that impression with yeah. people indeed um, ready to move, ready yeah. to move, move on. Um, is there any particular? Is there any, so like I'm guessing you yeah. saw the email I sent this morning. Um, I will say like, I appreciated the email because there's a lot of stuff in there that I'd love to talk about. Um, so it helps to kind of have like a outline, I guess, of things to chat about. Uh, one thing yeah. that I did want to talk about in our conversation. Um, that uh, I mean there's a few things I guess the one that I liked the most out of all the pieces you sent me was the David Roberts one I got around to reading it the why I'm a progressive um, yeah. I really really liked that piece um, I would say to the extent that I am politically progressive it it comes from a very similar place um, to that and I, I really appreciated the way he articulated things. I liked that he referenced um, Robert Sapolsky's work um, about like the costs of stress, um, chronic stress, and you know how that is associated with poverty and you know health problems and everything else. Um, 
That was really cool. Robert Spolsky is someone I really, really admire. He's probably one of my favorite scientists. Um, I've read all of his books. And so it was really cool. And I also went back and listened to his interview with Ezra Klein not too, like just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I really enjoyed that. Um, that was probably my favorite Ezra Klein podcast I've listened to. Um, and I, I loved it. Um, I think especially what I liked about the trolley problem aspect is um, a point he made about how the trolley problem is decontextualized from like your sort of lived embodied experience. Um, and it's very deeply connected to a lot of work I've been reading kind of in my own sort of like academic interests uh, concerning like embodied cognition how so much of our reasoning is actually shaped by our experience of having bodies, the kinds of bodies that we have, um, and their sort of dynamic interactions with the environment. Um, and I think, you know, to, I guess that's one of the things that's always bothered me about uh, a lot of like traditional or uh, not traditional per se, but analytic philosophy is that it treats a lot of like moral and ethical issues in a very abstract sort of like disembodied decontextualized ways and it tends to treat well actually in that way um and my critique you know well, i guess it's not really my critique but one critique of that is just that you know the very concepts that we the abstract concepts that we use to even reason about things like ethics depends on our embodied experience and that we um, you know, basically build those as metaphors out of the experience of our bodies. And so that, you know, sort of like lived experience is like more fundamental in terms of like ethics um, than the abstract principles in, in an important sense. And so I, I really liked it. I thought it was a really cool piece. Um, I think it sums up um, some of my own intuitions, at least for a lot of the progressive ideas that I support. Um, it's, it's really yeah. more about like, how can we expand, um, the opportunities that people have to contribute in a meaningful and positive sense. And I think it's an important way to argue for progressivism, I think, because there are ways in which that can be used to, I think, ally forces with conservatives on some issues where you can frame the benefits, not just in terms of their um, assistance to like marginalized groups, but also to like the broader functioning of the society as a whole and the economy and everything else. Um, Indeed. So yeah, I thought that was a really cool piece. I liked it. I'm glad you sent it to me. And why do you think um, so? Trolley problem's a fun one. I still love the memes. I'm sure. Even though I, um, I'm not a fan, actually, of the problem itself in a more philosophical way. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think if I have anything to add on to that. Um, Oh, let me think about that process for a minute. And alongside that, uh, I also asked because I know you you see, you said like you were that you that you really respect the like how I was trying to bring about good discussions and then yeah, separate it. 
by sharing the meta science content that I shared with you like a while ago, and just and me just realizing just a few weeks ago that I could have it would have been a lot simpler to simply put it on to Reddit instead of ha- trying to have you do it by service of kind of like my own personal like, mm-hmm. liaison, I guess, and just uh, just discuss it with your own um, circle. Or yeah, or yeah, definitely, and I think. Most of my yeah. support doesn't seem to be as interested in the meta science stuff. Um, uh, just in my experience of like bringing the topic up to people in my cohort, um, I mean they're interested in it in the sense that they think like open science is a good thing, and they're you know and they're all pre-registering their studies. But I don't know. It doesn't seem to me like most of the people are all that interested in like talking about it in an intellectual way. I guess at least in my cohort. But um, I was glad you posted those on Reddit. They I went through and read the Reddit threads, and they got pretty good responses. And I think so. That's definitely mm-hmm. very gratifying to be able to have those discussions with real yeah. professionals in that way, and people who generally care about those issues. I mean, only some, like, those are two that, like I said, got the most. Some that I shared, um, got only got like a small handful of responses. Yeah. Or, and, and the, and the, com- the specific comment that I shared with you, uh, I forget the, the username. Oh, but I remember <laughs> finding it amusing how he, that person, um, and I guess I don't know if it was a he, but I, I feel like it, it would be he for some reason. Like, he, would be the one who is mo- would be most likely to consistently comment on anything that I posted. So I guess he mm-hmm. was the one who's most engaged in, in those in discussions of meta science ideas. So <laughs> it's been kind of amusing how he kind of caught, caught on that I was the one who mm-hmm. kept regularly posting those. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you got you got yourself a fan there. <laughs> Well, he would also kind of give a lot of constructive criticism, as I'm sure sure you read. I guess a fan is maybe the wrong word, but someone who's at least engaging with what you're doing. Yeah, Yeah, no, I thought thought it was, uh, um, you know, I I think like the, I can't remember which thread it was. I think it was the one about the, now I remember, yeah. The one about the, uh, evolution of the scientific paper um, and the Atlantic article that you linked into it um, and I remember the first comment at the top of the thread when I read it was uh, one really talking about just the incentive structure um, where you need to publish as many papers as possible and there aren't great systems in place for uh, proving the quality of those papers or really judging uh, whether or not, uh, you know, the quality of your paper, you know, has any meaningful impacts, you know, unlike whether you get tenure or anything like that. Um, and for me, I think that's probably to a large degree, like one of the core cruxes of problems in meta-science. Um, but I think it's especially a problem because was sort of an arms race for for publications where the standards just keep increasing and increasing and increasing um 
and there's a certain point where that has to sort of like stall out where uh it just becomes unsustainable um and i think it'll happen sometime within our lifetime but i don't know what it'll look like um, or how it'll change things but I, i thought it was interesting and other people kind of referenced things changing and stuff um so i don't know that's kind of my thoughts on that whole thing i mean some of them i guess but yeah well there's whether well, like certain uh, comments or views expressed that you thought were surprising to you mm-hmm. or, or just really or kind of added on to your perspective let me pull up the thread again uh, of any of, of either thread or or the particular comment I shared about the larger issues and why he felt that, that these kinds of like more clever reforms or fixes don't get at the more central issue I'm just I'm just like looking at the some of the comments just to remind myself of anything um i did that like i did like how one of the comments talked about like um publishing like workflows and stuff um for like data analysis um that's definitely um interesting and useful i think like you know one of the big problems i've seen it's just very common for a lot of papers to not be very easy to reproduce or even possible to reproduce when you go through and read the methods even when the data is provided um so you know more incentives to do a lot of that work up front i think is helpful but i don't know nothing in particular is like really standing out to me right now at the moment um that i guess really broadened or i don't know changed my perspective majorly i guess um okay and probably because like i shared with these with you before so you were yeah totally I, i think so and then also like um i haven't spent as much time thinking as deeply about meta science as i would eventually like to um I've just sort of been prioritizing other things in the last like couple of years. Um so I don't know if I have a whole lot to like add that's too meaningful, I guess. Not necessarily add, but I guess it's just in the way that maybe they help add on that those that the what you read helped add on to your knowledge or understanding of those issues. Yeah. Maybe it's simply that as you get more experienced that those ideas become more salient to you as you have more interaction with how 
with how what it means to work in yeah. in that area and the issues that come with it. once you have more lived experience and it feels more those issues feel more real to you then it'll be easier for you to feel more engaged or have more mm-hmm. detailed opinions yeah no I, I think I think that's right I also think that like I one of the takeaways that I get from discussions like this is that um there are no easy or simple answers um there are lots of like individual things that individuals can do and that like institutions and systems can do collectively that will like improve a lot of these issues um but it seems like there's always uh trade-offs and you know you can maximize one benefit at the cost of you know maximizing another vice or another flaw you know um and so it, it's often difficult to um you know uh, it's understandable why it's been difficult for these issues to be addressed in fruitful ways um even though i think there is definitely progress being made indeed that seems pretty fair uh, just my own observations of the way people discuss those things yeah for sure it makes sense um but yeah i was glad that you did get some feedback there um i started following more uh, science pages yeah. on reddit uh as of recently um and i'm i'm very impressed with how good the or how great the discourse is on some of the science pages on reddit um there's some really sharp and thoughtful people there that uh contribute so you know it's it Indeed. really is true what they say yeah. you know reddit there's community for everyone <laughs> yeah uh, honestly i've been on reddit like constantly lately in the past few weeks mm-hmm. since i got into it and honestly i'm amazed i didn't get into it a long time ago i don't know why maybe it was, i think it's because it just feels overwhelming because there's so much and you don't and you just need it like a, maybe like a gateway or like a specific right. place to start and i got my gateway i guess was the answer subreddit and because it was a very specific place for a, spe- a specific group of people who listen to this one podcast and who wish and who enjoy this person's ideas and his writing and from there you explore similar if you've looked into similar subreddits that may explore other ideas and then you just get become more curious and decide to explore and branch out and from there you just have a more clear idea as to what it is that interests you and mm-hmm. so on and it just ends up being something that you decide that you find to be a very engaging use of your time yeah definitely i think i spent a lot of time um there's a great page on reddit um you might find interesting i i don't know if you will or not but it's called r slash mormon and so there's like three big mormon pages on reddit there's like one that's like the official church reddit page where it's like for people that are like active like latter-day saints then there's the ex-mormon page um which i don't like as much because it, it's not as uh intellectually interesting or stimulating it's it's more yeah it's more yeah, humorous and quirky and bitter i would say yeah uh, uh, yeah yeah I, 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 I then, then there's the r mormon page 
and the r slash mormon page is somewhere in between the uh ex-mormon page and the pro lds page it's basically a more neutral ground where they're like we welcome opinions from anyone like former mormons and current mormons like anyone can just come here to talk about mormon issues and that's a great reddit page for like lds issues there's a lot of really interesting dialogue there and a lot of pretty good stuff um i mean some of it does have that ex-mormon feel and i do think on the whole there are probably more people that are critical of the church than uh positive about it on on the whole on that page but the critiques read in a much better way um they're much more intellectually interesting so yeah. i don't know if you're interested in that idea that's r slash mormon it's another reddit page yeah <laughs> it's a you link to it if, yeah. if you want later <laughs> yeah, i sure I can, I can look it up i mean it's, it's pretty yeah. it's yeah. a pretty yeah. simple name but yeah i like it a lot yeah. that's a page i've gotten into i guess really in the last like month or two in particular um but i yeah. i did want to say this i mean this could serve also as a segue to another um, part of the conversation, I really appreciate um, some of the stuff you talked about in your email about feeling overwhelmed by how much content there is out there and how little time there is to consume it or appreciate it. Um, I yeah. am having this struggle more so with books, actually, than I am with digital content, but also with digital content. I have this enormous list of podcasts, of YouTube videos in my watch later feed, and books that I would like to read and listen to. And uh, it is literally impossible. There are not enough hours in the day to do all the things that are on these lists. And I feel a little bad every time I look at one of the lists <laughs> because of that. <laughs> and I have no solution. Yeah. Uh, I just want to empathize with you. <laughs> and of course, I feel your pain. That's, that's the kind of thing I feel like a lot of people experience, but we just don't know how to articulate or how to discuss it. And maybe, it's, and maybe there's just a sense of shame. Like it's, it feels wrong to complain about having access to so much quality yeah, content. Like, I mean, that's like I said, like that, that feels like the the epitome of a first world problem. But I still feel like there's something important to be said there. Because obviously, FOMO sure. is a real thing. Matches sure. of yeah, matches of. Like social experiences, but like feeling as if there's great content that's available at your fingertips, but you, sh you can't access it or really consume it because you literally just don't have the hours in the day, and that's just the ult mm -hmm. ultimate limitation. And that's just like seems like yeah. an unavoidable tragedy. I, I, yeah. yeah, I think it's interesting for a lot of reasons. Well, okay, so for one, I go back and forth on my opinion here to some degree, because part of me thinks, let's just say hypothetically, that um, we were both uh, independently wealthy and we never had to work. Um, and we could literally devote, you know, all of our time besides the time that we spend on like, you know, sleeping and socializing and, and like, you know, hygiene and everything else. Ba yeah, ba basic human function. function. We could spend all of our free time on consuming all the digital content and, and books that we wanted to consume. Um, I think we would grow tired of it very quickly. I think it would be too much stimulation. Um, 
we'd get to a point where it would be like, wow, this is a lot. And then we'd slow down and then we'd probably even out at consuming a level of like content that's maybe a little higher than it was before, but not that much higher. And that we'd find other things to do with our time. Like, I don't know, socializing more often, picking up new things overhand, whatever, stuff like that. Yes, uh, I know what you mean, and it does sound very plausible, because I remember I sort of, I felt some version of that when I was unemployed, and I had all this free time, and and I would just, you know, go through a lot of different shows through streaming and whatnot, and I did feel some version of that, where it just felt, even though it sounds ridiculous to feel tired of that, but I guess just emotionally, it felt as if I was just cons- consume them so much that it's just, they just kind of melded together and I wasn't really experiencing them in a way that felt satisfying even if I genuinely enjoyed mm-hmm. each one in, to some degree so I feel it's important to give yourself time and f- kind of like a space to, to really ex- experience that sort of any f- particular form of content that you, f- that you enjoy and respect in order to, otherwise if it become it doesn't it feels hollow regardless of its own merits just because in the way you experience it you need to give it time to sink in or settle in to really extract a real sense of ple- pleasure mm-hmm. or satisfaction yeah it. yeah definitely yeah i noticed that when i yeah you know during times when i've had time off and i've like binge watch tv shows um you definitely i get this if you like if i ever try and binge watch two shows back to back you know, it's like I binge watch one show, and then I finish it, and then I start binge watching another show, and like the experience of the second show is almost like ruined by the first show, because I'm still thinking about the first show. <laughs> like I need like a, a a break to like you know let that show sink into my psyche, and then do the next one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed, and, and that's why, because. And like I said, I can feel pretty indecisive as to what shows or t- films to really, or bu- or books to really focus my attention on. My because obviously, there's my time is pretty limited, and there's mm-hmm. so many options. So usually, it's based on like people who I respect and who I follow, like say certain YouTubers who review or disc- or make video essays about films and TV shows. And, and if I see them make a video essay about a certain TV show or film I haven't seen before, then that piques my curiosity. Then I focus on, I choose to devote my time to that one because having that element of knowing that that video essay has been made about it, that there's an element of discussion that will make it easier for, for that content to feel meaningful or, more, or at least more satisfying by being able to feel like I'm being able to, to be part of that discussion. I feel like mm-hmm. I can get more out of it. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. So I have, yeah. Yeah, I have yeah. a very frequent experience where I'll have friends tell me um, things like, oh, you should watch this TV show. Um, and I've, a while ago, I started making a list. Like, anytime anyone would tell me something like that, I would just write a note down in my phone. And, um, the list is so long now. Every time I look at it, I'm like, oh. <laughs> a yeah, little bit. It just a kind of paralyzes bit. you. Um, 
I did watch a new TV show, actually, over the weekend, um, The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, um, which had come highly recommended by a number of people I've talked to, um, and I enjoyed it quite a bit, um, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, what about the three other shows? <laughs> Would I have enjoyed those more? Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, I appreciate it. I think for me, it's more painful when it comes to books than like art. And I think part of it is that like with art, it's kind of like, you know, when I'm consuming art, it's more kind of for my own, purely for my own sort of like aesthetic pleasure, you know, like I just want to have an enjoyable experience. Um, you know, whereas with books, it's like, I want to have an enjoyable experience, but I also want to be like educated by what I'm reading. Um, I mostly read nonfiction, but even like fiction, I read fiction and a lot of fiction I think is very educating just in a different way. Um, and I, I struggle with that, especially because, you know, I think to myself, like, uh, you know, in terms of prioritizing things, if I'm going to enjoy reading this book and I'm going to be edified, I should probably have to prioritize reading this large book list I have instead of watching Netflix shows. But then, you know, other times I'm like, well, these Netflix shows are also great works of art and so many people have put their time and effort into them, you know? So I kind of go back and forth on that, I guess, sometimes when I'm like trying to decide, like, you know, maybe it's like the evening and I have like one or two hours before bed or something. And I'm like, I could watch a TV show or I could like, you know, read this book um, of like this, you know, list of like 80 books that I have, uh, <laughs> you know? And then it's always hard to decide because I'm always like, well, you know, maybe reading is technically better for me, but I don't know. At the same time, I also want to appreciate the yeah. stuff too. Yeah, yeah. Of course. If I'm being honest, I have I've haven't read a actually maybe not that long ago, but I haven't read a physical book cover to cover for like well well over maybe like two years now. Yeah, I'm being completely honest, and I, I'm not judging. What's up? <laughs> And, uh, and I mean, I've, obviously, I have read like quite a few books since then, but they've all most pretty much been, well, not entirely been, but oh, vast yeah. majority of them have been completely yeah. audiobooks. For the sheer convenience, for audiobooks the sheer are great. convenience uh, factor. I can't miss reading books. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, and just maybe one or two, maybe like a small handful of like ebooks yeah. on like the Kindle app. So yeah, the the idea of like being able to set time aside to actually read a physical book like a specific time and place, just the inconvenience, just feels so much more inconvenient <laughs> at this point in time. Just want to have all this other content available, so it just seemed and and this is and the one a major silver lining of having my my commutes being what they are like forty five minutes each way to work is that that's time that I always set aside for yep. listening to audiobooks or podcasts and when i'm at home just on the weekends by myself it feels like it, I, that's time i can set aside for watching too yeah um streaming content what have you so i feel like the so not that sets a good dividing line for what type of content i consume it for whatever times yeah well it's interesting um i i would say last year um 
during the quarantine is when I actually got back into physical books. Um, because before the quarantine, I was mostly listening to podcasts and audiobooks um, and uh, reading PDFs, you know, mostly articles, but sometimes like books as PDFs, you know. Um, but I was struggling a little bit with my mental health at the time. And it was actually John who was like, you need to read some fiction again. And then he brought over like a giant stack of fiction books um, that he thought I'd like uh, to my house. And I was like, all right. And I started reading them again. And I fell in love again. <laughs> um, I'd forgotten. It had been so long since I'd actually read any real fiction. I'd forgotten how much I loved it. Um, and so now what I do at least is I am like, because I sometimes have a hard time sleeping, I'm very strict about like my sleep hygiene. So like my personal rule, I don't always succeed. Um, it just depends on the day, but most of the time I, I really try to not like look at any screens for like the last two hours before I go to bed, um, at least an hour, you know, I try and make it to if I can, but you know, sometimes I can't. So sometimes it's just an hour. Um, and so I, I use that time for reading physical books. So I always have a physical book, at least one by my bedside. So I can do that. Um, you know, and if you do that every day, like for an hour, you can get through a book pretty quickly, depending how long it is. But you know, I mean, it's like a 600 page book. You probably get through that in like a week and a half. If you're just reading for 30 minutes to an hour every night, which isn't too bad. Yeah. Uh, but that that's the reason why I kind of yeah. got back into physical books because prior to that I, I was more like you where I was just mostly reading articles and listening to podcasts and audiobooks. I still have a large list of audiobooks in my like I canceled my Audible subscription like last year or maybe the year before that, but I still have like I think twelve audiobooks in my like library. <laughs> you know, that I haven't listened to. So eventually I'll get around to those and then I'll delete the app off my phone. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's very interesting how, how we manage all those things. So I've also been keeping like a reading list for like books I'd eventually like to read. Um, I think for me, the big part with prioritizing is just trying to figure out like how important a certain book is in terms of like how I think it'll change me and like how I think it'll add to my perspective on like important issues. And one of the things I'm quickly realizing is, you know, I don't know, it's, it's becoming harder and harder. Uh, Cause the more I learn, the more I realize yeah. there is to learn that would be important to know. And the more paralyzed become by the reality that I'll never get even close to being able to read all the books, even in a very niche area, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. So, no, I, I definitely empathize with it. Um, I guess my way of getting around it is really just like, kind of just going by what my impulse tells me a lot of times, where like, I'll have an impulse, yeah, I should buy that book. Indeed. And then I'll just buy it, you know, or like I'll rent it from the library or whatever, you know. And, and then I'll read um, to add on to the criteria you were mentioning about what kind of determines your desire for reading 
any particular book I would add, add on to that, like maybe like access to to certain discourse that you're curious about maybe like so that read certain, something so you can get all the so you can be able to consume the discussions around it and feel like you would be in on all the references made about it and feel like you mm-hmm. can be part of that discussion yeah no I definitely agree with that I feel that very strongly like in psychology one of the reasons I listen to podcasts is that um I feel like I, in some ways I've learned more about the field of psychology from podcasts by psychologists than I have from like my actual university classes. Um, just because they go into a lot of things um, that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily learn in university class that are still important aspects in terms of understanding the discourse of a particular like, field and stuff. Um, and so podcasts, I think, are very useful for that. Um, and, you know, I get a lot of my book recommendations from podcasts, too. So it fits in with what you were saying. Um, but a lot of it, too, has just been kind of like my own Googling. So it's kind of like I develop a strong interest in a particular subject. And then I just start re- like Googling all the primary sources that I can find and then just making lists of those primary sources um, and then realizing I'll probably never read them, but some of them I will eventually. <laughs> um, one of the, I don't know, I kind of, it kind of wish, makes me wish we were still Facebook, um, you still had a Facebook, but I can't remember if I told you this or not. Um, one thing I've started doing this year is every time I finish a physical book, um, I post a Facebook status about it. Uh, yeah with like a brief review um, (laughs) and like a recommendation you know like hey if you're interested in this subject I recommend this book or maybe that book was awful I don't recommend it Um, I've been with my career yeah I think so Um, but I had a friend do it on Facebook um, and uh he did it as a way of tracking like his uh reading goal like he, he was like it's my goal to read 70 books this year i'll post like a little review on each one as i read it you know um and i kind of just like the idea of having it in a place where i can go back and reference it but i guess i could easily do that with goodreads I mean, you make a fair point yeah <laughs> uh yeah they're not they're not my most popular facebook posts we'll put it that way <laughs> I mean, there's not, no okay. critical comments, just uh, very underliked <laughs> relative to my typical post. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's really just that people aren't seeing them. The Facebook algorithm is just like, nobody wants to see this. Yeah, so I think like so far this year, I've read like five or six physical books um yeah actually you know what you, what you should do you should post this, those reviews to like this the subreddit where the, the of the subject where those books are are mostly related to to find other people who have read it and to share your thoughts on it yeah. people who would be more I, likely to actually be interested i mean and it wouldn't be hard because i could just like copy and paste them from facebook ones i've already done you know um I might, 
I might actually, yeah. yeah. Well, because I mean, they're all like. There's definitely been a bit of a theme. I've been on a theology kick lately, so I've been reading a lot of like books about religion and symbolism. Um, but uh, I'm starting to turn towards more science stuff. Um, uh, like the next like two to three books I'm reading will will be science focused. So I can think of a couple subreddits that those might be interesting to talk about in. Especially stuff like about consciousness, philosophy of mind. I'm reading a book right now. Um, about some of those issues that I think is really interesting. So, but now, yeah. so, that's actually a good idea. I'll try that out. Right, if I get some good comments, I'll send you a thread. You can look at it. Sure. I, I gotta say, um, do you, I, do you appreciate how I've been kind of in, including like more alternate, like social media links to as for uh, kind of expanding the sources that I use for like our discussions or, or things that I send you like just going outside before it was mostly just things like uh, Vox and Atlantic and Slate and I've kind of expanded out more over time to like more different kinds of websites and alternative sources of like actually referencing yeah, like, no, Twitter I really threads like and that. Reddit um, posts. I've enjoyed stuff. all the Reddit and Twitter threads that you've sent. Um, some of them have been really thoughtful. Um, you know, your Twitter can be uh, an amazing place if you follow the right people. Yeah. Um, but, so it's it's been nice. I I'm sure. That. Yeah. And I'll just and I've shared with you. All, oh yeah, and I've also shared a yes. bunch of I really enjoyed the writers with you. Um, um, I really liked. Uh, there was a particular one. I think it was the one about QAnon. I really liked that one. Also, the one uh, from, well, this one, I don't know. Yeah, no, this was uh, the David Roberts Twitter thread. I mean, he's from Substack, but that was a Twitter thread that came along. Uh, yeah. And then another one from Matthew Gla- yeah. Glazius, which I really liked. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah, I think this is a good segue to the the other subject yeah. I was asking you about in the, this morning's email about how have you come across, have you had experiences with writers or thinkers who you respect and admire, but who seem like they were in like different kind of s- circles, kind of interacted with each other in in a way that seemed kind of unexpected, and that kind of made you maybe like contemplate like the larger ecosystem of. Uh, that these like the operating of people yeah. who you are um, drawn to well i think you have converted well converted is a strong word but i uh, i was gonna say <laughs> you definitely opened my eyes to yeah. ezra klein um who you know is someone i really only knew about tangentially because he made sam harris really angry back when i was sam harris regularly <laughs> And that was my first exposure to him, right? You know, so like I kind of yeah. already out with a negative opinion of him. Um, yeah. But the more I've come to consume his work, the more I like him. Um, and it's interesting how that shapes my perspective, you know, because I remember listening to that podcast where him and Ezra Klein had their famous debate. Um, you know, and originally I was thinking that Ezra was being unfair to Sam um, and sort of implying motivations in Sam that like, didn't really have and you know just not being like very generous but like i go back and listen to that again and like 
you know, I felt like my perspective is a lot different on that than it was before. And it's just interesting to see how that's being shaped by like my changing perception of who like Ezra Klein is, you know, as like interlocutor, I guess, in the media media space. Um, You know, I've loved his conversations with like Andrew Yang, for example. you know, and just just connecting it to like other people who I follow and, and admire and respect. And um, I have disagreements with Ezra Klein, but I I think he is definitely not operating in bad faith at all. Um, I you know I think he's operating in better faith than most actually, um, or at least it seems that way to me after getting to know him better. Yeah. And to be clear, like I think about Slide, like there are aspects about him that I also find at times frustrating in my own way. And hey, if I need, if I can, I mean, obviously I have a lot of respect and admiration for him because he of his way of thinking, as I as I've titled it before, and um, institutional deconstruction. I that's something that's deeply resonating with me. But with that said, like there aren't. I'm not, there have been times, like even when listening to his podcast, where I do feel that he that there are like legitimate critiques of him, of of think of when he tries to address certain topics in ways that maybe feel a bit clumsy, or or ways that I feel c- could be more polished, or 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 at times where I. Or maybe a tad bit wishy-washy, or not, not with as much confidence or as much precision as feel I would like, or in ways that maybe don't aren't as carefully thought through. So uh, there are definitely are legitimate critiques of him, I'm sure, and I have no problem admitting that. And like I remember, uh, um, you you remember who ContraPoints is, right? I've Did she say ContraPoints. This is relevant. I, I promise. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, like I, I was like, like I remember when I saw that he had an, that an episode with her. I was really excited because obviously I, was, I, I respect both of them in different ways. But I will admit I found that episode pretty underwhelming, and I felt like he wasn't as engaged in that world of like RedTube or like maybe like leftist YouTube discourse of people like her as I feel he should have been, and I. So I feel like the discussion was a bit too superficial and, and a bit underwhelming. Maybe it's just because I'm I'm fine more engaging than his maybe than his than he than his average viewer would be for or listener would be for some reason. So there definitely can be episodes that are better than others and times where he's at more a more effective interviewer than others based that can vary based on the guest or topic. So and have even people in his subreddit can at times admit that there are certain guests he has where he didn't do a good enough job of like really giving like not so much like hard questions of like trying to challenge them or correct them but like then go into enough depth on the merits of their work as he could have and they suggest like maybe occasion like I remember there was one involving like the I forget the name of the author but he wrote a book about um Keynesian economics, or no, about yeah. the history, the founder of Keynesian economics, and that he who had an episode with Ezra Klein, and they found it somewhat underwhelming. But they suggested a episode where the same writer talked to um, Tyler Cowen, and they thought that was more interesting. 
and I listen to it, and, and I sort of agree, and I can understand where they're coming from, so, obviously, and I try to listen to various writers from time to time, so, even though, I, have you ever, by the way, have you ever got the chance no, to try I haven't yet, listen to some of I, I hope to, stuff? Um, it's interesting, I read uh, the transcript yeah. of his episode with Jordan Peterson, and I really liked it, um, I didn't know. yeah, and yeah, so even though I naturally have like philosophical philosophical disagreements with him, I do find I respect him and find him an engaging interviewer. So I respect them both in like different ways, and they both have their strengths, and they both have their own different kinds of strengths for interviewing guests in various ways. And so there's a lot of value in that, I'm sure. I think that's what just draws me to those kinds of people. It's just a deep sense of curiosity and a deep, earnest sense of trying to understand people's way of thinking and finally help their listeners develop a not just find, develop, learn like interesting information, but like develop a constructive way of trying to process ideas and 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 investigate what it is they believe and why that is about how. About the worldview, yeah, whatever the topic may be. Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely appreciate um, all that. Um, I don't know if I necessarily have much to add onto that. Of course, um, I oh yeah, to get on to what I was uh, the earlier question <laughs> um, that was more relevant um, is that I guess just be. Oof. Like are you saying, like Twitter can be actually really interesting if you follow the right people, and I've been trying to do that. And I gotta say, it is really interesting, like to see certain people in our like writers and thinkers who you respect, especially in the world of like journalism and or thinkers or writers and what have you, who and to see them kind of interact with each other and like ha- go back and forth on their, and share ideas with each other and kind of have these semi-casual discussions about like really important about really important and interesting topics is admittedly a bit surreal yeah at times it can be um it's it's very bizarre how people you would never expect to talk to each other somehow like end up in dialogue um and often on the same side of intellectual debates you would not expect them to be in together Yeah, and that's not necessarily that I would never expect them to talk to each other. Like they're vaguely in similar like circles philosophically, but it's just I guess because you they're from like different areas. Oh, they have different focuses or different priorities and their issues and the things that they talk about or write about. That when they do intersect, it's quite interesting, and especially when they're people that you you know fairly well, but you don't really think of them as people and interacting very much when they do honestly i can't help but feel like a fanboy and it feels like like two things that yeah like them yeah. having like a, a, a crossover of some sort <laughs> that it, it just feels really appealing to, to it makes you wonder what what these two people would be like if they if they met mm-hmm. or talked to each other and yeah just be well, really one in that way. sort of small example of this um that was somewhat recent um, that I, I appreciated was uh, Sam Harris recently had uh, Ian McGilchrist on his podcast 
Um, I might have talked to you about Ian McGilchrist before, um, but he wrote this book called The Master and His Emissary, um, which was about like the research on um, the brain hemispheres and differences between them. Um, and he had a sort of broader cultural argument that he like linked uh, that to, um, which was pretty interesting. But uh, um, it was sort of the last person I expected him to have on the podcast. Even though Sam is like very interested in neuroscience, um, uh, Christ has been quite critical of Sam <laughs> at a number of points, and like the new atheists um, in general. And uh, what was interesting is they had this whole conversation about split brain research, and they didn't touch on really any disagreements between them whatsoever, uh, which is unusual for Sam. And it was like a two and a half hour podcast. It was in the whole thing. And the last like 20 minutes, they had like a small debate about consciousness. And it was not really a big difference uh, between the two of them. It was not like a contentious debate at all. It was just very interesting to see and somewhat unusual, but but kind of refreshing actually. Uh, it was nice to see just a very friendly conversation. Yeah, indeed. And as I was saying before, like what, when you see these, people interact from like different areas and you who you both who even when you respect them both and you want like wondering what it says about like the larger ecosystem of people who you follow that sort of thing i wonder and like trying to think about what these people have in common and what draws me to them because obviously i I respect them like different like both i respect each of them but in different ways And it's kind of thing that leads you to thinking like what what it is that you find interesting about them, like and how they connect to your thinking, what resonates Mm -hmm. with you. So so like seeing that kind of thing, especially on Twitter, think can be quite interesting and a good place for like maybe as a way of contemplating like the the larger themes of what it is you find appealing in in writers and thinkers and whatnot. Yeah, I I think for me. Um, I would probably say like I mean this this would probably get into a slightly different uh, area of conversation but you know I've definitely thought about that in the context of like the people I follow um, and whose work I, I probably consume the most and I think by and large the thing that probably connects all the people who I'm most interested in is that they're really concerned with like um I'd say meaning, like meaning in life, but like its connections to sort of like big picture ideas, sort of like the intersection of like the big ideas and meaning in life. Um, And like, you know, kind of living that out in a personal um, existential way rather than just pure intellectual. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, I thought recently in terms of like the people I consume, that seems to be what connects a lot of them. Yeah, and as I was saying before in the email with the example of like uh, Scott Alexander, of all the books he could have chosen to do a review of, he chose the, the one book published, run by the one guy who obviously who's right now been really into the past year or so, uh-huh. or even even before that, and thinking like you know there's probably tons of books on, on cognition, on AI, and effective altruism, yeah. on technology that he. Like the kind of stuff that he writes about on say Star Codex all the time. 
he they could have chosen, but you know, he chose that one book, and it's it's actually a book that I've read before and I thought about a lot, or because the guy who wrote it, I read about his stuff regularly. So yeah, and obviously, so it's just kind of one of those <laughs> worlds collide moment that just feels kind of surreal to really think about. That when I that when I first saw it in my inbox, I kind of had to sit down and read it, wondering like what this guy thinks of the, of the what the, what these two people think of each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's definitely interesting. Um, because there there are a lot of books, you know, that you might pick before that, you know, that you might expect him to pick, but yeah. Indeed. Um, just trying to think of what if I have anything else to add on to this? Um, mm-hmm. I'll think about that. If, mm-hmm. if, in the meantime, um, what thing you want to, tra- tra- to transition to? Um, a couple of things um, in reference to your email. I, I did want to say I appreciated that LDS Church is an example of cosmopolitan values um, versus liberalism. Yeah. Um, the moment yeah. you, I read it, I was like, oh, now I get it. <laughs> It was yeah. like, it makes perfect sense to me at least. Cause the church has always been that way where it's like, we're a global church and like, look at these videos of people singing the church hymns in different languages across the world. And, you know, we make room for all people and all cultures, but like in practice, the church is very like uh, traditionalist and a very like white evangelical fifties, 1950s American sort of way, you know? Yeah. <laughs> And it's, it's a little, you know, it's a strange disconnect where you're like, what? you know, it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> um, but, you know, a lot of that is just, I think, a misrepresentation based on the fact that most Mormons are concentrated in, like, conservative Utah, you know. Um, and yeah. the, and you know, also, just the, most of, of the leadership of the churches primarily have, have usually censorship have a very distinct demographic that they have in common although recently like the quorum 12 apostles has been slowly been being more open to people of different backgrounds yeah yeah definitely um yeah you yeah. can tell that they're they're trying to make progress i guess in that sense uh, yeah yeah actually this i think this is a good point to bring up something that i read that i thought was interesting so um jenna rice who's an lds writer who i really respect brought up an interesting point that i i want to get your reaction to she said that this church is kind of a gerontocracy i believe where it's ruled by elder by people who are deep very elderly have obviously of old yeah. age and she says that it's both a blessing and a curse obviously the curse is pretty obvious and people have discussed it at a great length about how it's made it very difficult for the church to adapt and to be able to address important societal issues in, in a forward-thinking way, in a way that's, that allows them to think about things and culture, to anticipate them and to think about them in the long term, and it would be in a practical way before they get out of hand or before they reach a certain inflection point. Uh, and to be and therefore for them to be sensitive to like cultural and um, divides in the church or in the general population mm-hmm. and so that's something that's obviously been discussed at great length and however the blessing aspect that she discussed that that was very interesting i haven't really thought about that much before it's how 
the church actually has relative to a lot of other like maybe say evangelical mega churches or and obviously the catholic mm-hmm. church they have a more um I'm trying to they have a far less scandalous record regarding things like sexual abuse and whatnot and like have like church leaders being caught with have adulterous relationships like that sort of thing is much more rare in the Elias Church than it would be in plenty of other like mainstream Protestant or evangelical churches and whatnot. It's just because of the fact that they're so old that they're added they're, uh, they're in the age group where that sort of thing is just very unlikely to come from them <laughs> for obvious mm-hmm. reasons that it would be if they were a lot younger for for right. whatever. Yeah, and so I guess, and that's uh, I haven't really thought about that before, and it's like, huh, I, I guess huh, I didn't really, that seemed quite interesting and thought provoking. Uh, uh, back when I was a faithful member, I would have said it was because of the true gospel that there was less uh, <laughs> uh, uh, instances of, of abuse um, and other scandals and whatnot. I also think it's probably I wouldn't be surprised if it's a population thing too. There's just a lot more Protestants and Catholics and, uh, uh, you know, other religious groups, uh, members of other religious groups. So to some degree, it makes sense that you would see more instances of that stuff, just given the size, um, yeah. which I also think is part of that. Um, but, yeah. you know, definitely the age thing, I think, plays a role to some degree. I don't know. I mean, there are definitely the occasional stories uh, about like bishops in the church who take advantage of people or asking appropriate questions. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. of course, just, I guess just people who are like really higher up, like they're able yeah. to avoid that sort of thing. At the very higher, highest levels, it's it's much less common. Yeah. So it supposedly shows that they're pretty good that having it, that this culturally set up to where people don't really rise up to those ranks until they reach the point where those kinds of be like scandalous behaviors are way less likely to be are less be committed for various reasons and made it also so that there's if it does happen more levels it's more likely to be weeded out earlier on so that way that people who commit those sorts of behaviors early on aren't the people who are going to be chosen to rise up in the ranks and that's what she proposes kind of like maybe there's benefit that a potential benefit of that system mm-hmm. of making it them having to wait so long to get to to higher rankings mm-hmm. yeah that once they get there we if any bad behaviors would have been weeded out a while ago so it, there's a greater sense of confidence that they can avoid those behaviors that would make the church look bad mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, it's interesting. I've never thought about it in that way, but I definitely uh, see wisdom in that. That's, that's very intriguing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I don't have a, a, a strong opinion on it other than I think, you know, there's, there's something right about it. I and mean, it, it seems interesting to me. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think that's cool. Just uh, a benefit to the gerontocracy aspects <laughs> of the, you know, because yeah. I will say that does, you know, in the circles I follow, that tends to get a lot more criticism than, uh, than, 
support, I guess. <laughs> so it's good to see things from the other perspective as well. Yeah, I respect and I think it's important to discuss um, need. Um, uh, if sorry, you were. Go ahead. I was going to say if there was anything you wanted to transition to, or if you, you wanted me to move on to pick something for us to move on. Uh, to. I think. Hold on one second. I'm just like looking at the uh, email um, that you sent. Where'd it go? Oh, that. Or just anything that I've, I've sent you recently, or even before our last discussion, that you didn't get a chance to like express any thoughts on that you thought was interesting. Just whatever. Yeah, came to your one mind. thing was the. Um, I can't remember if you emailed this or texted it to me, um, but you sent me uh, one, well two articles. One that I'd already read before from Ezra Klein um, about like the reactionary right. And then another one that was sort of connected thematically about uh, the way that the Republican Party has sort of been uh, radicalizing uh, democracy. Um, and you mentioned wanting to have another conversation about it. And I thought it would be interesting. I read both of those articles earlier today. Um, and um, I think I appreciate the points as Klein made in his article um, about the data and society report by Becca Lewis. Um, the one that got a lot of talk from the IDW um, folks. Yeah. Um, I, um, actually, real quick, and just I guess just to make it be clear as to what I think the parallels are and, and what I think the, sure. the focus should be. Um, so, so that report regard that um, you were mentioning, like, I, I wasn't, that specific report, I wasn't really yeah, that sure. interested in. What The point that was made that I think is relevant in both areas is how the actual like, policy disagreements aren't really that meaningful. So, about how he discusses at the beginning that even though someone like Dave Rubin says he has a lot of reasonable positions and that he's against death penalty, he's in favor of criminal justice reform, he's in favor of cannabis mm-hmm. legalization, he, and just having like, a lot of mainstream like political positions that Ezra would probably agree with and uh, and share and and obviously more so with Sam Harris because Sam is well basically central left and so him and Ezra would probably share a lot of agreements on certain policy issues like economic issues and yet that obviously doesn't stop them from obviously having like strong philosophical disagreements about certain key issues as there as if, as has been made clear many at certain points and it's important to discuss that often those issues of public policy and economics isn't really the heart of what makes these people have of these people's like alliances and their this of their disagreements with one another of their sense of how they feel connected to each other and to why they associate with certain groups more so mm-hmm. than others of why and that kind of connects to what Chris Hayes was saying in his piece and recent one about how even though the GOP has moderated a lot of issues and how they've kind of surrendered on a lot of issues regarding same-sex marriage and LGBT rights, at least in their messaging. That So even though, and he's discussed how, but something that's funny is how there's 
even in a lot of like solid red states, there's a lot of support for certain progressive policies. Mm-hmm. Say, I, I remember thinking about this a lot. In 2018, in the midterms, Idaho voted in support of Medicaid expansion, which, may I remind you, comes from Ob- yeah. Obamacare by yeah, 60%. which is hard to, hard to and, wrap your head around. Yeah, and in Florida, in, 20, in the 2020 general election, so about 48% of them voted in favor of um, Joanne, Joe mm-hmm. Biden for president, but 61% voted in favor of a $15 minimum wage ballot initiative. So that there's an interesting cross-section of voters who do vote for Republicans, but who clearly support progressive policies. And so I think, so that's the kind of thing I wonder about, what drives those kinds of people it, to vote the way they do, if it's not for policy reasons, because obviously a lot of things they want are not supported by GOP mm-hmm. candidates. So it, that a lot of what drives people's behavior and the, the way they, sort themselves and the way the way they and the groups they identify with isn't really about policy yeah. or economics it's about a deeper sense of identity or about where they stand in the culture and about how they react to like a sense of in the time if like rapid societal change and makes them question about what place they have in their country and the country's heritage and its place in the world and what's what understanding of america they choose to associate yeah. themselves with and and how it's key to their sense of who they are and and what and th- there's tribe and people who they see as sharing their values their cultural values even if it's not necessarily even if they don't really agree with them in their economic policies because in the end it's not really about the public policy that matters about this the cultural narrative about their who they are as Americans that really connects these people and and they're the way they see themselves and, and the larger and the larger idea and the larger um, landscape of I'm trying to find the, the right mm-hmm. words for it because because as, as I was saying in his piece, we were going the reactionary, right? A lot, even like the IDW, like there's a lot of a lot of respect for diversity sure. of opinion and economics and religion and all these other things. The role of the state and whatnot. But the, obviously the thing that tends to bind them is a deep, a very deep skepticism of identity, of identity politics, political correctness and, and SJWs and whatnot. And like finding that kind of common thread and then of their they all claim to be very deeply supportive like their of like freedom of speech and whatnot and open discourse like seeing like the thre- that thread that unites people as a clear you have to clear window as to the things that drive their their sense their sense of identity about who they are and and obviously they go seeing that go from like not just the idw not just like these intellectual circles or circle of pundit or networks of thinkers and pundits and writers but go into like a larger on a large scale up to a larger level about how we think about americans and voters in general i think is and seeing that kind of progress seeing maybe kind of scale up over time by comparing those two articles i think is what i was hoping to get at 
about that dynamic. Yeah, yeah. I definitely appreciate that. Um, just as a somewhat uh, frustrating but banal example, um, I remember. Um, so I can't. I can't remember if we talked about this or not. But um, uh, a family member that shall remain nameless. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, but one of my family members voted for for Trump uh, this time around, this election cycle. Um, and we were just chatting about, you know, politics, and it was right after the, uh, you know, voting day, and we were chatting, and they mentioned they voted for Trump, and, um, you know, this family member in question um, considered themselves a Democrat, or at least they were registered as a Democrat, and I was like, why vote for Trump? And they said, well, the radical left is just too crazy, you know? And it was interesting because, you know, they were a more moderate Democrat, one who would, in many ways, uh, if you were just judging from a pure policy perspective, find Joe Biden to, like, be an ideal candidate for them. But instead, they voted for Trump because, you know, they felt like the radical threat was this, the radical left was this major threat that they had to distance themselves from. Um, And it's a somewhat banal example, but I think it, it, it gets to the heart of the deeper point that you were trying to make, which is that yeah. much more so than policy, it seems people are voting more on the basis of these sort of like loosely constructed identities, which seem to be built out of narratives that aren't really being constructed by the people involved, per se, that are being constructed or engineered by forces that are, um, you know, beyond them, so to speak, you know, and you, and you see that in the context of the reactionary right sort of YouTube algorithm and stuff. Um, you know, um, one of the things I think that was pointed out in Klein's article was about the way in which a lot of these thinkers are uh, making conservatism seem cool, like it's an edgy or counterculture thing to do. Uh, yeah. Even though um, it's not really about conservative, what they're saying, what they're usually often talking about or really pushing is, isn't really conservatism of like the ideological conservatism of like Ronald Reagan and like, Emma Burke or whatnot. It's really more like yeah, anti leftism. And watch out, the left is bad. They're going to get us if we don't fight them. Yeah. Implicit in that is just this, this weird assumption that there's like this one to one mapping between left-wing politicians that, um, uh, you know, are, like, Democrats and the radical left, you know, um, or leftism, if to the degree that it's even really a thing. Um, it's just, it's a blank slate for people to project their fears and anxieties onto. Yeah. Whether, whatever it is about race or gender or about nationality, or about masculinity or feminism just whatever trying to it's not about public policy about what laws that you support that you think will make your life better it's about how you feel about the yeah, in the landscape of like changing demographics of changing social values of changing social mores or views about mm-hmm. all these other things that you feel more that just feel more real to you that just symbolically feel more meaningful to you than public policy than, than those than public policy issues and that just give you guide your sense of identity far more mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, I, I, th- I think I agree with that. Um, it certainly seems to be, be that way to a large degree, um, where, like, I'm trying, I'm struggling to put what I, what I'm thinking into words. Um, yeah, that's fine. Um, because I, let me try, let me just think how else I can add on to this and. And if you feel like you have the right way to say it, then go ahead. If not, don't worry. So, as as I was talking about, like when he says reactionary, right? It's not really an insult. It's not really, it's because it's not really about a specific ideology with like very specific tenets or doctrines. It's more of a lineage, of a lineage of people who that, and you find this in many different societies at different times. At during times of rapid like social change and demographics or cultural values and whatnot, there's always a large group of people across a seemingly wide um, spect- ideological spectrum. People who are deeply conservative, like Ben Shapiro, and people who are more center left, like Sam Harris, who are deeply uncomfortable with that and who often have deep philosophical disagreements with aspects of that social change and even though they may have obviously a lot of key disagreements on issues of public policy and economics and whatnot, as I said, that sense of discomfort can often unite them in ways that's, that seem counterintuitive, that shows that the that, uh, that it's not so much they don't have, that those disagreements aren't real, it's just that they aren't as high a priority as those deeper questions about their sense of identity and the way they feel about these bigger ideas about about society, about nationalism, about sex, about ways we think about our how we relate to our, our country, our society, our history, our sense of who we are, and that obviously stems from these more specific discussions regarding changing views on race and and gender and sexuality and whatnot and regarding what's t- what's tolerable and what what isn't tolerable and what sh- should be given what should be respected as free speech and what shouldn't that gets at people's ideas as to who that sense of who has cultural power and who has the authority to make those decisions mm-hmm. as to what we see is what is, what is within what is fair play in the public square it's something that just gets at people on a deeper psychological level than than Paul then Paul and pop policy tends to so that's uh, why there's that that discrepancy can be so wide and especially more so in recent years because that as those kinds of cultural issues have become just so much more salient and those issues of identity just become much more the forefront. I mean, they, they've been yeah. always been there to some degree, but just all these social trends that happen in the background just escalate to the point where they, those questions that just really get at people's more like deeper instincts or deeper fears and anxieties just become unavoidable and, and more salient and just more real that they start to sort people in in ways that just didn't 
that's just seem deeply counterintuitive and so you just have to like refine the framework by which you use to understand people's decisions and their sense of what matter of who they are and and why it matters so and why it matters to him the way that it does and why it holds that priority that it does in spite of all these other disagreements that <laughs> seemed easier to explain for a long time yeah no i think i appreciate um what you're saying here um in terms of thinking about this these movements in terms more rooted in identity um in, in beliefs yeah. yes um yeah. i think one thing too yeah. that stands out to me in terms of the identity at least as far as the idw stuff is concerned is um i think a lot of the that community is also defined by uh, a certain um almost a certain arrogance and i i don't kind of like this whole we're rational and you're not um or like defining their identity by this desire to be more rational than our historical opponents mainly the leftists right um and you know i i can't i want to say one of the things that you sent me talked about this to some degree um and talked about it like in the context of another piece that we discussed a while ago called facts man uh, yeah. I, I also um I have to ask did, did you get the reference that when David Roberts just kind of referenced yes, it yeah, in, in yeah. his Twitter thread? Yeah, I enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. It might have even been the David Roberts Twitter thread is actually the one I was thinking of. Um because um, I couldn't remember the exactly uh, the the piece it was from, but just that uh, the idea or the belief I think that, yeah I think this is the David Roberts thread you know just that um, the belief that you are a, an especially rational person makes you much more prone to self-deception than you would otherwise be um, perhaps if you didn't necessarily have that belief um, and that a lot of what rationality is about is about like uh, temperament like an attunement and like sort of like you know your uh, approach um, your way of responding to things rather than having yeah. the correct ideas about things yeah. uh, and I think yeah. that is an important important distinction and I think like the IDW you know to me seems much more like I guess from a psychological perspective if I had a critique it, it would be that it seems much more proposition like propositional than practice oriented which is to say that it's much more like do you have the correct opinions um not about everything but just the correct opinions about you know some core fundamentals and the core fundamentals tend to be like their version of free speech um which is you know just uh speech that is uh you know like just and cancel culture is bad and like other things like that Um, I don't know. I see that as being especially salient in in the context of the way in which these sort of reactionary groups um, define their identities. Um, there definitely is like a misguided sort of rationalism that seems to be 
playing the key role, um, which I think is important to talk about as well. In addition to like the um, political aspects and the social aspects, like the so changing social demographics and other things like that. Yeah. yeah. And the thing that adds, that drives a lot of people's support for say GOP candidates, even if they are the kind of people who vote for Medicaid expansion for $15 minimum wage, just certain progressive policies. It's just that sense of deep fear of being culturally irrelevant and the sense of cultural resentment of when you're not, you're not when they see themselves voting the way against Democrats, they're not really voting against democratic policies or, Democrat, or Democrats' way of governing. They're voting against the things they associate with Democrats that they do feel like they hate. Things like Hollywood or things like coastal, you know, coastal liberal elites who look down on them, who think that they're who 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 look down on their way of life, on their culture, on their mm-hmm. traditions or values and whatnot, who try to change their who are trying to change their way of life mm-hmm. in a way that makes them deeply uncomfortable. Their understanding of of, of gender roles, of understanding of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a in American things, challenging those ideas and their understanding of their history just makes them deeply uncomfortable in a deeply visceral way that just makes them deeply hostile towards that group of people, regardless of what their actual policies are. Because just that idea of, of your conception of who you are as an American just feels more instinctual, feels more fundamental to your sense of self than it is toward what policies yeah. do you think make your life better? Yeah, I think this is one of the reasons why um, what you're referencing here is why one of the a lot. I remember he was talking to Ezra Klein, I think, on his podcast, and he, he mentioned like telling a, sto- uh, a couple of stories from when he was on the campaign trail and he was meeting with um, more conservative individuals like truckers and other like working class individuals um, in like rural parts of the country when he was traveling around. And, you know, he remembers being like somewhat, uh, he said he remembered being a little bit shocked and surprised at how hostile people were if you sort of led the conversation with like, oh yeah, I'm a Democrat, you know. Um, Whereas like when that wasn't involved in the conversations, like they were able to have really great and friendly conversations and like get along super well. Um, He remembers like, you know, like, we're as a party we're not doing we're doing something wrong here um which i i thought was really kind of a neat way of of framing it um but but you know there's um um i just lost my train of thought but yeah it was one of the reasons why i like yang because i think he had a, a an insight into that issue um and a way of responding to it that i thought was very helpful at least in terms of like the politics Indeed. And um, did you get, by some chance, did you get to read the Will Wilkinson Substack post I, that I shared with you about where he tries to dissect kind of, kind of conservative psychology about why they have those kinds of attitudes and where they seem deeply uncomfortable with progressives understanding of like when they have like history and whatnot? Is that the heritage? one about the, oh yes, the anti-woke one, like the anti-woke patriotism, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did yeah. get a chance to read that. Um, I think it's interesting. Um, 
you know, there definitely does seem to be like a basic trait difference um, that seems relatively robust, like in the like psychological literature um, in terms of like personality differences between liberals and conservatives. Um, you know, and insofar as that translates into political action, I mean, how it translates into political action is com- really complicated. But I think uh, um, that's definitely a core feature of that, you know, personality is that discomfort of ambiguity, um, you know, and the need to sort of resolve yeah. that um, into um, more rigid boundaries, I guess, which definitely explains that that sort of identity-based formation of uh, factions uh, that are rooted in identity more so than in beliefs. Because people with very different identities can all support very similar beliefs or have like a wide range of beliefs but still have like a central identity. Because one of the things uh, that makes this conversation interesting is like the way in which there's been a lot of discussion about how politics increasingly as the country becomes more polarized is like dividing families where you have a lot of conflicts between older and younger family members, between spouses, between siblings um, that are political in nature um, that are, you know, often quite fierce and divisive. Um, and um, i trying to remember where I was going with that now. Um, I guess I, I would say that like a part of that, I feel like I had two ideas that were connected to each other. Yeah. Well, generational thinking, I wasn't thinking about that so much as I was thinking uh, about, it was a broader point about like polarization and personality, um, but I think I'm losing what it was I wanted to say exactly. Um, Um, I don't know. I guess, I mean, I definitely do see some generational divide there that's relevant, but um, I, I guess the best way to kind of summarize where I think I was going with that. Was it, like a, was it involved in like a psychological affinity toward novelty and and change? No. And evolution. That's uh, just a lot of it's just based on the way a person's brain I mean, is like, wired. That's all relevant for sure. Um, it's just I don't know. My brain just died. Alright, <laughs> it's uh, fine if you f- figure it out, then you can go ahead and mention it whenever it comes back up. Um, oh, speaking of which, I think this is, yeah. we're getting close to the end of the um, two hours. <laughs> Um, so if it's okay with you, once our two hours ends, um, if we can, uh, wrap up our conversation, usually we go a little longer, but I am feeling kind of tired and, um, it is kind of late. Okay. Yeah. Um, I have, I think I have a a fun segue. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Um, you... Something I often wonder, I often like to think about is, and I, and I shared this in the emails, like thinking back about cult, like pop culture I consumed as a kid and trying to think about like my reaction then and how it's evolved over time or more, more maybe how I had a similar reaction to what I have now, yeah. but I just didn't have the right words to express it. 
yeah and i think maybe we can tie that into like in the way our way we maybe that a lot some of that it's easier to articulate because we have a clear understanding of certain like social norms or understanding of what is seen as tolerable or what's seen as funny or maybe what's just seen as cringeworthy or questionable <laughs> and how those evolving social norms can affect our reactions to like media we maybe enjoyed mm-hmm. as a kid as kids yeah um i remember you brought up the drake and josh example uh, in the email that thought was interesting yeah um, i'm trying to think if i have any specific yeah. examples of stuff like yeah 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 I'll, I'll list some more examples and if you have any just go ahead um so do you remember like uh, do you remember the specific episode where it was they were all in the oh, house yeah. stuck inside because yeah. it was raining outside the one and it with like them singing yeah. we will how, rock you yeah and I rem- you remember how Walter w- was called by his boss and had to go report a little while, oh, yeah. while it was raining outside and while and while it was raining, well, he coat and basically, I guess, mugged him. Yeah. And the whole thing, I remember even as a kid, I found it really uncomfortable that this is supposed to be comedic, but like, this is, but in reality, like this is probably deeply humiliating for him. Even as a kid, I remember feeling that, and just yeah, yeah. Nice no, to have to go through that and on camera and. Uh, 